Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Trash and Treasures, where we watch the movies other people throw away. My name is Vry, and with me, as always, is Dorothy. Hello. And Sean. Hey, I'm not at work time. Yay, we we excavated you from the, the dark, internetless hellscape for like a second. I have internet. You might as well not have internet. internet. The audience can't see. <laughs> I have internet, like prodigy era internet. I'm just, somebody find that bit from, from uh, Hackers. <laughs> I wanted to have my baby. Oh yeah, what was that, 28 kilobits or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. I'd kill for that internet right now. We'll get you some <laughs> live action adventure games. Sink into some Phantasmagoria. <laughs> I have Phantasmagoria. I know you do. Just really own the era of technology you're being forced to live in most weeks. Well, the problem is, is I own Phantasmagoria, but it's on GOG, which would require decent internet for me to download it. And then I would need a computer that's running well enough. You know, it's fine. It's an issue. We were finally able to wrangle him back long enough, and we decided what was the best use of this time. Documentary month, which would normally be a little bit earlier in the year, but we ended up moving it off so that we could shuffle the schedule around a little bit. It seemed like a better use of our time, frankly. Why couldn't I watch a more fun movie? Didn't you have anything sillier than documentaries? <laughs> no, this was fun. <laughs> It was fun. Besides, you get to pick the next one. Yay? That's right. Like, I have a vast knowledge of documentaries. Hang on, let me bring up Netflix. I'm sure I can find one. (laughs) No. We need you here to be our person who can can stand in for people who don't watch documentaries. What do you mean stand in for? Isn't that usually my job in documentary month? (laughs) You do watch documentaries, though. (laughs) That's a lie. I don't watch documentaries that are like other documentaries. <laughs> My god. I didn't make you watch an Errol Morris documentary, you hush. This is not Werner Herzog. This isn't Kevin Burns' Civil War. <laughs> it's not God's Angry Man or The Thin Blue Line. <laughs> okay, but- You're fine. But are we ever gonna watch the one where the, where the bear ate the dude? Yes. Like the, I feel like no. Probably not for the show. I feel like there might be ethical considerations there. I think if I look hard enough on some of the weird conspiracy sites I go to, I might be able to find the audio. Would that help? I think the audio's in it. Yeah, but I was just going to extract the one interesting bit from it and be done with it. No, you have to earn getting to voyeuristically watch a, a man die. No, By I watching don't. all of the leading Google. up to all this being a bad decision. Bro, that's fucked up. <laughs> I'm sorry. And this is why we can't watch that one. Because it lends itself too much to making fatalistic jokes in the face of annihilation. We could all die tomorrow. We will all certainly be dead in 50 years. Anyway, this is a really nice and heartwarming documentary (laughs) called Bathtubs Over Broadway. Though mortality is still with us, always. Yeah, I'm trying to make the audience feel a nice warm thing in their chest right now, and your goth ass is not helping me. (laughs) What, the rapid heartbeat of an anxiety attack usually gets my blood flowing? I'm sorry, isn't that- that- that's not normal? That's just what a heart rate sounds like. That's why I have to drink so much caffeine so it will always be normal. 
<laughs> but bathtubs over Broadway. Yes, it is a marvelous 2018 film, which is uh, directed by Dava Wissanant, uh, centering around, and I assume, you know, largely orchestrated by its main subject, Steve Young, formerly a writer for The Late Show with David Leverman. Pants Steve on eBay. You probably haven't run into him unless he sniped you in an auction. Also, if you're still using eBay, hello over 40 listeners, I didn't know we had you. Objection, I use I use eBay to buy second-run figures from Japan. <laughs> Interesting. Do you actually bid on them or do you click buy it now? Why the fuck would I ever bid on anything? I rest my case. Fair enough. <laughs> now, Bathtubs Over Broadway, which came out... Just this last year, it's really new, and it just hit Netflix, so it's finally easily accessible. Is belongs to the school of documentary that I like to call cool weird shit you didn't know about. I had the good fortune, Ryan and I did, to see this uh, in theaters, barely. It did get a theatrical release. I was working at an independent theater at the time, so we were able to see it in the two weeks they had it. Us and nobody else. That was an empty theater. A few other people did go to see it over the course of its run. Um, and everybody who saw it was thrilled by it. You know how few people saw that movie? I tweeted about it and the official account liked my tweet. That's happened to me before. That happened to me with Wonderstruck. Exactly. It's what happens. Really? You're saying the documentary, which is a niche audience, with limited release about a niche subject really doesn't have a lot of play color me stunned hey this one should have a, a built-in audience already because it's been covered by mystery science theater in a roundabout way yes if you're a fan of mst3k or riff tracks you have you have come across the subject of this documentary at least once before i didn't know steve young was involved in that i thought he was just a letterman guy no don't you remember norm that's extremely cursed. Take it back. <laughs> Dr. Doofenshmirtz's son? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're right. The, the guy in this documentary does have a substantial more personality than Norman. The Norman shorts are weird. Not as weird as the world of the industrial musical, though. This is so weird. It's adorable, though. The storyline of this documentary is Steve Young is a writer- for the late show with David Letterman. He's been working there for 25 years. He has, and he's a dude who goes to work, goes out drinking because the world of comedy is deeply toxic, and then goes home. And then one day, while working on a bit for uh, Letterman, which was where they would go out and find weird novelty records to make fun of on the air, he discovers this record called The Bathrooms Are Coming, which is, you know, supposed to be just for souvenir use you're not supposed to play it commercially and it's an entire broadway musical that's meant to sell a product or well broadway style excuse <laughs> important distinction in the style of the broadway and he becomes obsessed so we're gonna do that whole that whole champagne thing it's a sparkling musical <laughs> it has to come from broadway to be a real broadway show <laughs> this is not even off broadway though no, it's off, 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 off Broadway. Like, you're tempted to describe this as outsider music, but it's not. It's insider music. Objection? This isn't off Broadway. This is better. 
I know because they told me so when they told me what the budgets were. <laughs> That's true. They give a very specific f uh, figure where they talk about the staging on Broadway of My Fair Lady in the 60s, which w cost just a little under half a million to stage. I assume the whole run. Uh, whereas one industrial musical, which runs for one night, had a budget of four million dollars in the 60s. Like ever, but in the 60s. <laughs> 60s dollars. Which is over 12 billion today. Which is just <laughs> slightly less than Spider-Man Turn On Off the Dark. On and or off. My number is bullshit there, by the way. I just made that up. But the sense of scale, yo. <laughs> My number isn't bullshit. That's documented. <laughs> it can never make its money back, even if it kept running. Okay, but as somebody who is at least a little bit of a, of a show musical nerd, I don't know if you had gleaned that from by this point, listeners. I ha wait, really? You like musicals? I mean, I would have never guessed with that book we read. You don't bring that up. We put it to bed. It's dead now. <laughs> I murdered it. And then I strangled its corpse for good measure. But the thing about, like, the idea of this entire bubble of industrial musicals existing in parallel to actual Broadway, which, for those of you who don't know, film musical tanked in the 60s after Hello, Dolly, and then went into, like, you know, outsider sort of indie musicals like Cabaret and Little Shop of Horrors and Rocky Horror. Meanwhile, Broadway, the stage production, had a major falling out in the 70s and 80s because of the, you know, economic crash and nobody could put on, afford to put on these shows. And also Broadway has always been an inherently exclusionary uh, medium anyway because you have to be able to go there and they've always, you know, problem sending out copies. I'm not getting into the whole debate about whether bootlegs are of of Broadway shows are ethical. We're not doing that here. And but and then it came back around again with the advent of the mega musical and Les Mis and Cats and all that shit which slowly increased and increased until the bubble wait, burst wait. with like legally Who, who made Cats again? No one knows, <laughs> but it's largely credited to TS Eliot. <laughs> But then it crashes again with Legally Blonde the Musical, which reportedly, and I might be pulling this number out of my half-remembered ass, cost like $2 million to stage. And then there was Spider-Man Turn On and or Off the Dark, which was the E.T. the game of the Broadway scene. I.T. man, turn it on and off again. So what you're saying is in a few years from now, we can expect to watch our own documentary where someone goes out to a dumpster in in the middle of a, of a desert and digs up the Spider-Man musical. Yeah, you two will just be in there <laughs> looking for their careers because Bono forgot them again. <laughs> the Edge and that other guy. So all of that was happening at the same time. That million dollar single night shows are being aired for audiences of a single corporation, which I guess is the ultimate distillation of the Broadway ethos that you have to be rich enough and in New York enough to go to one of those shows. I have bitter shit thoughts about. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, so a lot of this documentary, um, 
follows Steve Young around as he talks to people. But also, we get a lot of reconstructed stuff from, like, news footage of the time, um, and also footage that exists of some of these shows. So he started out just being fascinated by these because it's such a freaking weird pop cultural item that nobody's ever heard of. And for years, he kept looking for more of these and finding them here and there in record shops. But, but he had a really hard time making connections about them until the internet really made it easier for him to talk to people. Now, I want to pause there for just a second because you make this man sound, you know, rather normal and relatable to our listeners. And I'm afraid that's not the case. <laughs> like, look, I get it. We all get into very obscure hobbies. Like, I like rare video games and, you know, dumb vintage RPGs and, and things of that nature. I restore fountain pens. But this man is self-described as having comedy immunity, so he doesn't laugh at jokes. Excuse you, he has comedy poisoning. Whatever. Immunity poisoning. Same thing. Obviously. <laughs> okay. Because, like, he's been working in comedy for so long that there's no novelty to it anymore for him. He specifically <laughs> said, I have no hobbies. Yeah. There's nothing that this guy cares about. Like, he has a family and kids. I assume he cares about them. But, like... I don't know. They were never on the on the same screen in the same room as them. Sh Sean, I don't know how to break it to you that that's how documentaries are Lies. <laughs> Lies. I saw many people who were on the screen at the same time. You got me. So, yeah, if you're thinking that this person is, like, normal and relatable to you, he is not. I just wanted to clarify that before we continue on. I mean, there is a little bit of a sense in the early scenes when he goes to talk to his fellow collectors who, collectors who are like his connects that he is willing to kill them should the situation be advantageous Yeah, enough. the vibe is kind of, I need to go see what you have so I can plot your murder. And I also need to find out who your contacts are so that I don't accidentally lose them when I kill you. <laughs> Don't want to kill you too soon before I don't get all the information that you have and are useful for. <laughs> it's only a little bit upsetting. <laughs> but like, and of course the other people, who, so this guy looks like Griffin McElroy in 15 years. That, that's, that's, yeah. that's what Steve Young looks like. I want to say that's a little harsh to Griffin McElroy, but I'll just assume that he had a personality, personality dectomy beforehand. <laughs> He was built on all middle sliders. And he's the youngest child. This guy may have been an only child. That's the crucial difference. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, all of, all of the other people who are super into these hyper-capitalist musicals from the 50s through the 90s are like... A magical spiraling gr grab bag of getting weirder and weirder as they introduce each one. Uh-huh. They're like deep in pop in in like punk culture jello from the dead kennedys is one of the is one of his connections and his excellent hat. oh no that that's the other guy excuse yeah, me yeah there's, there's a guy who just wears a big fur hat all the time and is yeah, i like cool. how they ease us into that because you know we we get our ostensible protagonist then we get the guy who still looks kind of normal then then we get the musician then we get the guy in the big poofy fur hat who appears to live in a completely unfinished industrial building 
with just his record collection. I mean, he has a record store, technically. Technically, but I get the feeling that, that this is the AZ Fell books of record stores. Joke I was going for. We were all. Isn't that the dream for all of us? <laughs> it's just to have an ostensible store to fill with our crap. Yeah, where you sell nothing. But occasionally people come over to admire all the crap you have. <laughs> no, because I've been to, to gaming stores like that. They're really uncomfortable and unpleasant. So I don't think my dream store would have to be like that. Too cliche. After we have met all of these people, it eventually there eventually comes a break in the case where he actually manages to find somebody who was involved. And meanwhile, this is all happening in like 2015. Once he, it, it's one of those things where once he finds one person, then they still manage or, you know, happen to be in contact with somebody else who was a performer, who knows somebody else, who finally can get him a little bit closer to the composers, the Holy Grail. And see, the thing is, you might be picturing something like janky or weird or random, but it would be hard to stress how extremely real these shows were. <laughs> Yeah, they're legit as hell. Again, if I can, I'm sure like, I'll be able to find it. Who was that one composer? It. Oh yeah, Candor and Ebb worked on industrial shows at one point. The people who did Chicago and Cabaret, and for the example. The guy who did Fiddler on the Roof is in this. Not talking about Fiddler on the Roof. This is apparently, or they were apparently, the kind of show that a person just did for hire because it was a quick turnaround and it paid super well. So then you could use that money to start working on your dream projects. And again, I will include one of the, uh, I'll include the Mystery Science Theater short that they riffed that was one of the few filmed copies of an industrial musical. Just so y'all can get a feel for you it. You gotta do the telephone one or the car one? Obviously the car one. It's very good. <laughs> and I had seen these shorts on MST3K before. And they're weird. They're very strange because it's hard to figure out like what the context is and and why this exists and why you would make a commercial like this. But the reason is that they weren't made for consumers. They were made for the salespeople to hype up this very particular idea of the value of acting as a salesperson, as a middleman in a capitalist interaction. Yeah, and their aesthetic and their existence and just like everything about them is so over the top and so unheard of that I'm both surprised by and then immediately followed by disappointed by that this doesn't come from the Fallout series. <laughs> because if you had just shown this to me and told me, yeah, this is a new Fallout expansion, I'd be like, wow, they went over the top for this trailer for something silly that, haha, that would never exist in reality. This is some wacky world building. I do expect those mods to be on my desk by Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, because r really, like, the, the idea of a, a full musical production. Fallout right Detroit. <laughs> right yeah in a lot of the um sort of establishing the culture section there are a lot of shots of detroit and flint michigan as like flourishing and prospering from the automotive industry yep just making more and more money because this bubble is never going to burst because we're going to keep selling 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 okay that is the one i wouldn't even call it a downside of this musical be or this documentary because it's really not what it's interested interested in tonally but it is odd how it keeps it wants to be about the artistic side of the creation of this wonderful niche art and the importance of the preservation of art 
but it kind of keeps brushing up against this fact that these were all celebrating, you know, American exceptionalism and rampant consumerism and the the importance of like loyal employment. And then it's and so by necessity, it kind of gets to the point where that bubble burst and, you know, gets a little bit. Oh, gosh, darn it. Well, Isn't it, it just sad? Well, kind of, sort of did, like, villainize foreign automotive manufacturers with that just one little snippet that it did where it just started showing, you know, Nissan and Toyota and all that fun stuff. Yeah. And VCRs, which, as we know, are a great replacement for a car. But I do think it's interesting that other than Young, who you know, had 25 years of stable employment in a quasi-creative industry. The other people who are fascinated by these are all, like, aging punks and people who are, like, critical of the status quo and and capitalist structures. Yeah, because this is almost like a Waters-level parody of, of consumer, mid-century consumer culture, completely without irony. And yet at the same time, you really feel for, for the composers. Um, I think it's Spiegel who talks about... Yeah, Sid Siegel. You know, the fact that, that his wife... Uh, Sid Siegel, not Art Spiegel. That's a different guy. But Sid Siegel who talks about feeling really hurt when somebody... I, when his wife dismissed the work he did as just glorified commercials because there is artistic effort being put into all you know these shows even if they are serving the capitalist well, he machine was also the one who who didn't do it as like the gig economy as no it were. like that was like his whole career yeah that was his, his life's work like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things whereas like beeb did a whole bunch of these but also mounted some legendary broadway productions so I think it's interesting that they had conversations with both of them and sort of these two different paths. They don't actually bring it up explicitly, but it makes sense that Young would be drawn to this stuff because he's a comedy writer in Late Night, the ultimate disposable form no, of the no. art. As Letterman called him, the last of the late night comedy writers. Yes, he's the last great late night comedy writer because as we know, there's just nobody else in this game. No more late night. They packed it up. Yeah, it's that, all gone. That's it. After after ten o'clock, dawn happens. You just <laughs> teleport to the next day. No, but I I do think Letterman kind of has a point there because the specific form of late night that that he comes from and that Young was writing for has been largely supplanted in many cases by like informative late night entertainment. Rather than like, yeah, the Daily Show really based. changed everything. Yeah, but he is pretending that Conan <laughs> doesn't exist. That upstart young redhead <laughs> with his beautiful. Cloth. And then after they all had their tearful goodbyes on the set of Letterman, that that young Catholic menace snuck in through the door, twirling his mustache, a mere forty-something, <laughs> still had dark hairs on his head. It was horrifying, and they all clutched their pearls. <laughs> he was, of course, still a white man. Don't worry about it. But, like, I mean, it is interesting that they're talking about, like, this very specific definition of late night and the specific definition of an entertainment industry. So Young 
manages to find a connection who has another connection. He he finds something in a YouTube comments. No, it wasn't a com- was it a comment. No, I thought it was the description of the video. No, somebody posted the video, and then one of the comments was like, "Hey, my aunt was in this because oh. he." I guess he was just sitting around googling names of songs from the bathrooms are coming. His favorite, his favorite musical. Which, by the way, he had a Google alert uh-huh. on. You know it. Which, by the way, he goes out of his way to say, "I was never into musicals." Yeah, Brian McCall BS on the Google alert. This man uses Skype. Yeah. Well, he's not a gamer, so he can't use Discord. Discord wasn't invented. I know, but it's also funny to say. Just because it has that aggressive gunmetal gray interface. Discord. Conversation for gamers. Which is, yes, why he has the product. I hope they got money from Skype for this. They even have the call sound. The the horrible bloop and the little, you know, the ringtone. It's and then the the viscerally then unpleasant. The slow frame dropping, bad quality, <laughs> bad quality video. Remember when your family tried to hold a long distance baby shower for your sister over Skype? Yeah, my sister walked away from it <laughs> for like two hours, and no one noticed. Yeah, that sounds about right. So just to give. You know, he he manages to find a couple of performers, but I feel like a special tip of the hat to uh, the first woman he gets in contact with, which is Pat Stanton, who seems incredibly Pat charming. Pat Stanton She married her co-star, who played a uh, caveman. Because the centerpiece that the the name of the documentary comes from, The Bathrooms Are Coming, is one of the ones that was never filmed. So it's kind of you as the audience are reconstructing with him secondhand what these songs could possibly have been referring to, which is a very musical feel when you get the cast album and you're like, well, what did this look like? Why is there this long musical break? But then What's it happening? turns out that she actually has a 16 millimeter reel of it and she mails it to him, which I feel like is a good decision because otherwise he would have showed up at her house and murdered her for it. He's kind of got the same vibe as, um, I don't know if you've seen One Hour Photo. Nobody saw One Hour Photo. And yet it's so acclaimed. By who? <laughs> People don't, who don't know how to pronounce Evangelion. Ouch. So, to be fair, that was his joke. He decided to put that in there. He specifically wanted them to mispronounce Evangelion. Yes, but still. But same vibe, same unnervingly mild-mannered, obvious murderer vibe as Robin Williams in that. <laughs> like, this man would kill for an album. <laughs> wow, so, like, I just wanted to tease him a little bit, and you just took him out and murdered him. <laughs> Self-defense. <laughs> Why? Because this is entirely calling out you and your hobbies? <laughs> we are all called out by this. A little bit. Extremely. I am going to go ahead and unequivocally recommend this documentary right now, at the end of the episode, at any points in between, because I find it just utterly 110% charming as this celebration of liking weird shit and also the importance of documentation and preservation of things that aren't necessarily considered high art. That's super my jam. It's important to have an archive, even of things that don't seem significant at the time, because like, like with this, these are not things that most people would think need to be saved, but it's also giving 
us, the audience now, just this look into the bizarre structure of consumer culture, you know, and industrial culture in the late 20th century. Like, you could not make this shit up. An entire world, millions of dollars. And, and like, it tells us so much about corporate culture. It tells us about musical trends of the time. It's a snapshot into the careers of famous artists. It's genuinely pretty catchy music. The staging is cute. Cute cute seems dismissive. I just am delighted whenever I see people on a stage dancing okay, because I'm easy. Pants that fall over was great. <laughs> that was cute. Oh. <laughs> Where they had to help them up. Protect because I them. think they legitimately had to help them up. I also, ha- I don't have proof of this, but I feel like this is the spiritual predecessor of, like, the Wendy's rap. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's reasonable. Like, singing training videos. But th- these are much higher gloss than that. Oh, well, yeah. and it, it also has that uh, that vibe, like you brought up when we were watching the movie. It's got that journey feel to it that's kind of like the good version of the journey they took in Best Worst Movie. Yeah, definitely. Because, like, we tease. Steve Young definitely has that that kind of a little bit over-eager in a I-might-murder-you-for-your-stuff kind of way. But also, he he's very genuine in his in his enthusiasm, and they don't seem creeped out by him. Like, you know, it seems like he took right. a respectful yeah, I mean, they, distance. People are always arranging to, like, meet him for the first time in a public place, but that's just reasonable. He does not actually seem mm-hmm. dangerous. Very reasonable. Well, it's it's also the, I think it's the difference in motivation because, you know, our protagonist from Best Worst Movie is taking the journey to get the fame that he wanted to get from being in a movie and he's finally getting it now so many years after. And this guy is taking the journey to fulfill his hobby because he's never had one before. So it's a difference between self-aggrandizing and self-enrichment. The performers of these also seem to be under no illusions about the silliness of what (laughs) they were doing. So, like, they're very touched by how sincerely he likes their art, but I don't think, you know, that they would be hurt if somebody, uh, about all the collectors who also are clearly enjoying it on a little bit of an yes, ironic level. This is level. clearly one of those things where you start liking something ironically and then, oh no. Oh no. Oh no, I have a lot of emotions about this for real, actually. Did you accidentally create a, a large-scale ship in one fandom that way? Uh, yes. Listen, folks, all I'm saying is don't ship ironically. It leads to bad places, and the Watchmen meme live journal will tell you about it. <laughs> you accidentally created one of the primary ships. I didn't create shit. I just sat back and watched and was very encouraging. <laughs> and whoops. They were the ones who said, Oh man, I bet that those those wacky fangirls will start shipping, I don't know, something ridiculous like Night Owl and Rorschach when the movie comes out. What if we just made some of that ahead of time to get ahead of them? That will be funny. And then the entire community suddenly... Suddenly was a a Dan Rorschach shipping community? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Oops. Oops. You memed too hard. Bean theft. So romantic. Right there with Joel and his flame wars on MST3K. Some men just want to watch the world burn. <laughs> no, no, that that was the other guy from Watchmen. Ugh, one of my favorite parts of this movie is when um, when Young is is like in an elevator getting ready to go and meet Pat Ginola, like for the first time in person. And he's talking about, 
oh, this is so intense. This is such a big deal. It's so intense. It's like a big, important summit. And then he's like, wait, but who would I be here? Summits are between like important people. It's very sweet. <laughs> and it's like in his equation here, he doesn't fit into a summit because he is not an important person in this uh, industrial I, musical world. I have to agree. There are like two or three times where his um his sincerity like cracks you cracks you in the face because on the same line, my favorite bit in the movie was when he um he says I started this, started trying to find people so that I could get more records for me, for my collection, and now I'm here with all these people and I wouldn't trade this for a stack of records to the moon. Right. It, he ends up part of these people's lives because he's bringing back something that they've had no reason to discuss for decades. And he's also making the transition from like, you know, some of the other collectors kind of jokingly, but also kind of not joking in that way. Like, curse him as a hoarder who is, like, buying up all these records and sniping their eBay sales. And by the end of the movie, he's really invested in, you know, documentation and sharing this with people. And he wrote a book to go along with this documentary called Everything's Coming Up Profits, which you can look at if you want to see some of the more of the album covers and some of the surviving photos. And it really... Although, thank God, this is a documentary. Yeah, I think I said that while we were watching it, that I'm really glad did. that they made this a, a documentary film, because as good as good of a resource as books like that are, um, when you're trying to learn about something, this reminds me of uh, the Celluloid Closet documentary that goes along with Vito Russo's Celluloid Closet book. When you're talking about auto-visual media, there are things that can be conveyed about it and discussions about it that you couldn't do on paper. Well, I also think it's the difference between um, books and movies. Books, there's so, so very many books and finding a book is very difficult to find unless you're specifically looking for something. And this is so niche. Who would ever be looking for it to find it? Yeah. Whereas a movie, people will always give a movie a chance because its intent is to be widely distributed and, and viewed. Yeah. And I would probably read that book. I would be willing to read that book now that I know it exists. But there's a different density of information and a different experiential quality to it. Yeah, I feel like on the page you could probably experience, wow, the author really cares about this a lot, but... There is something about the narrative quality of a documentary that, you know, it's it's easy to it's easy to turn it into pablum, and it's easy to dismiss as an easy trick to get the audience on a subject side. But there really is there's a reason that the personal essay style is so popular. It's because it's it's a good shortcut to in, emotionally invest a, a reader or a viewer in the emotional experience of, of a cultural object. It's a very powerful yeah. tool. And obviously this, this whole situation is sort of, it's a limited resource because um, a lot of the people he like manages to connect with are, you know, in their eighties and a lot more of them have already passed before he even got into this hobby. And we actually see him at one of these people's funerals by the end of the film. Yeah, that's Sid's funeral. Yeah, Sid Siegel's funeral. 
Florence Henderson also. Yeah, who who was also involved with these. Has died by the time filming finishes. Because, by the way, Florence Henderson did these too. So did Martin Short. And Cheetah Rivera. It, and it is kind of, even though it's selling this sort of every person fantasy of, of being able to to do the thing that does happen in small fandom, especially with the internet now, you know, where you can kind of get a little bit closer to the people who made them. Literally, I did this um, with with the crew of of um, Our Fair City because I just was a big nerd loudly on the internet when it was a little bit of a niche show. And now I kind of am acquaintances with a few of the creative team. But it, at the, so that does happen in small fandoms, but also... There's, this guy is able to get to where he was because he worked in in late night where famous people are coming and going all yeah, the time. Yeah, I guarantee you he knew a bunch of these people already. He just didn't know the connection. Or at least he had the ability to get his agent to talk with their agent because you're surely not just calling up in their house and be like, hey, are you a really famous Broadway singer? Hey, you remember what? Hello? Yeah. Sup, Florence Henderson? <laughs> Hey, Martin Short, um, in between filming Jiminy Glick, you want to pop over here and talk to me about this weird shit you did at the beginning of your career? Probably don't remember on the account of, you know, the everything. I assume were wildly present. <laughs> okay, but how good is this movie for the fact that it's, it's a movie about, like, the slow arc of how comedy makes it hard to appreciate thing and like can be emotionally deadening deadening to the importance of appreciating things sincerely and it's not incredibly self you know smug and self-satisfied because that that kind of story is not uncommon and it can be intolerable yeah. it, it probably could have been that it might have it might have been that but it it seems like it was saved from being that because his actual perspective on it changed at some point. Yeah, I mean, he, he was talking about comedy poisoning at the beginning of it, but to me it seemed more like irony poisoning. Hmm. Like, everything he looked at had 15 layers of irony to it, and he didn't even realize it. And he was just jaded into seeing things as acquisitions to be more performatively funny. But then when the way to acquire those things it had to involve other human beings, suddenly he had to make those kind of social connections again. I think this movie also knows the difference between liking something even though you know it's sort of ridiculous and irony poisoning. Because I think a lot of times those kinds of of tracts conflate the idea of you either think something is great and amazing or you're terrible and cynical and jaded. No, it's okay. Sometimes the things we love we, we are flawed, and it's good to recognize that. Oh, really? You think that? Gee, I don't know. Do you do you possibly believe that might be the thesis of our entire podcast? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then then there's that really sweet line near the end, right before it turns into a musical sequence, because this movie was made for me. <laughs> for me, personally. <laughs> it was made for Steve, but you're welcome to watch it, too. Because even <laughs> if it's just made for this audience of one, gosh, isn't it great that other people can appreciate it, too, even though it's silly. And he has that great line at the end where he talks about, you know, before he would, he, he would 
be very cutting about strangers and now he sort of thinks to himself well what if this person is the Sid Siegel of some amazing thing that I don't know anything about and I don't know I feel like that's been a thing I've discovered as a person on the internet like I don't know getting into wrestling which I had always thought was sort of silly and dumb and like holy shit there's a whole world of people who are really good at sport and perform and so much history and I didn't know about this all until like you know six months ago holy shit there's new discoveries about that all the time because the world is so big and and things are so exciting and I'm having a feeling (laughs) I also think it's really interesting how it's structured around sort of in the background, the dissolution of the Letterman show, where mm-hmm. it's this immense industry, where he's talking about this immense industry that seemed too big to fail and had tons of money in it and seemed like it would never stop. And then all of a sudden the bubble pops and the people who had been securely, you know, working in this in this shadow industry just were thrown into sort of this bittersweet chaos yeah, and, for, and twinning it to the narrative of the, the Letterman show dissolving is interesting. And for me, that one bit where they're they're finally demoing the Letterman studio is sad in two ways because it's it's very heartbreaking and sad to see the the one guy go into the dumpster and you know steal a chair, and then he goes in the dumpster and I don't even know what he steals some piece of molding or something, and that's really sad and touching. And also sad because the construction workers are people. You could have talked to them. They'd have given you the damn chair before they ripped it up. And you wouldn't have had to climb a New York City dumpster. Seriously, if you wanted something intact to take home, you could have just talked to them. (laughs) They're not lesser creatures, you animal. Listen, everyone knows that it's very important to approach Teamsters with a sandwich in hand as a peace offering. <laughs> hey, hey, that's- this Union day jobs ain't no joke. It's New York. That better be a hot dog or a slice. Excuse me. <laughs> Out of the three of us, I'm the only one who's never been to New York City. You can make that happen. <laughs> uh, you can make that happen. I'm not going back. Oh no, what? Are they out to get you? <laughs> Did you piss off Frankie? Down at the docks? No, New York was just very big. Fair. And and I was much, much more, rather I was much, much less, shall we say. And it was easier to get around. Okay, but do watch this though. It's very easily accessible if you have Netflix. And it's very good and it's only 87 minutes long. Yeah, uh, it was wonderful seeing it in the theater. Um, I'm so glad that I did, and I'm sad that more people didn't at the time that it was out. It was not heavily promoted. I'm not blaming anybody for not knowing it was out, but it was just such a great experience, and you should see it when you can. Also, the end musical number is precious because they get everybody who was who was in the movie to kind of talk, sing, and walk around if they're not actually one of the performers. <laughs> In these wonderful sort of mid-century costumes. It's precious. Steve Young tries to sing. Bless him. He tries to sing one line in that, and it's very funny because he sounds worse there than he does any time throughout the movie when he's humming along to these weird-ass musicals about, you know, grain manufacturing and diesel engines. (laughs) It's so sweet, and and I can't. Yeah, and like, I'm not into curatorial fandom. I'm much more of uh, a transformative fan. But I think this got a lot closer to helping me understand what curators get out of their fan experience. 
Yeah, definitely. Showing, uh, showing that curation can still mean community in a meaningful way, which is nice. Because yeah, that's just something I've never, that's never really been interesting in my fan experience. Because whenever I'm collecting knowledge, it's specifically for like transformative purposes. It, I, I feel like it captures a lot of things about about fandom without either feeling ex- like it like it doesn't name those things necessarily but it doesn't feel you know lurid and can you believe these weirdos in the way that stuff about fandom kind of can sometimes i suppose part of what allows them to get away with that is that young looks is so conventional in every way well, I also think it comes down on the the very rare good side of of taking a moment and exploring fandom without understanding the broader concept of fandom. Because I've seen many a times where, you know, someone, a dude, will show up and be like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to explore this one tiny aspect of fandom and pretend all the other studies in fandom don't exist. <laughs> well, doesn't Netflix have another documentary about fandom out right now? It sure doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, enter the anime is bad. It's real bad. It's real, real bad. Okay, but the other go-to I, our, a comparison I was going to make is ima- this movie is also not super shitty and exclusionary like say that one fucking star uh fanboys oh. the worst thing i've ever tried oh to sit through God. in recent memory that was painful that was a mistake i'm sorry i had been wanting to watch <laughs> couldn't that have known, for bro. years and years since it came out i would it had always been on my radar and then i sat down to watch it and that was a mistake wow we made it 20 whole minutes did we make it that far fuck me <laughs> Yeah, that was weird. If by weird you mean bad and deeply, deeply uncomfortable and outright hateful. Yeah. Woof. A- anyways, about the good movie. Yeah. This, this good, good movie. E- even if you're not like necessarily into musicals more broadly, this is just a well-made documentary that's not overly cloying and it's quickly paced. Um, it's not it it. It has some talking heads, but it balances them well with found footage. It's just nice. It, it's a good beginner's documentary. And it's just really interesting. Yeah, it's a subject that I never would have imagined existed and had never heard of. We all liked it, so that speaks well of it. Good job. Yay! Go team. All right. I think that about wraps us up on this one. If you liked this episode, you can always find more of us on SoundCloud by looking for Trash and Treasures. You can, if you want to send us a letter, you can send it to trashandtreasures underscore pod at outlook.com. Or you can find us on social media. We're on Tumblr at Trash and Treasures Pod, or we're on Twitter at Trash Pod. And if you come say, hey, we'll give you a shout out on the show. Uh, this time, give a shout out to... to work friend of mine at lauren in space i'm sorry we keep dunking on things that you liked as a teenager and i hope maternity leave is going well 
Also, in new news, we also have a Patreon now, you may remember. It's patreon.com slash trashandtreasures. Uh, if you pitch us a couple of dollars each month, we have bonus content, which is very exciting. But whether you donate a little bit or none at all, we still love you. It's just that this is a way for us to, you know, pay for our fees, source some of our materials, and keep the lights on at home. All right, uh, Sean, we did promise that you get to pick the next documentary. What are we doing? <laughs> Take care of yourselves. See y'all. Good night, everybody.